But the question is, Molly, how do you get there? Do you get there by confrontation, violence? Oh, is that the question you were asking? Yeah. See, that's, I mean, that's another thing. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence. Um, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. On the other hand, uh, because of the way this society is organized, because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect things like that as reactions. If you are a black person and live in, 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 in the black community all your life and walk out on the street every day seeing white policemen surrounding you, I, when I was living in Los Angeles, for instance, long before the situation in L.A. ever occurred, uh, I was constantly stopped. No, the, the, the police didn't know who I, who I was, but I was a black woman and I had a, had a natural and, and they, I suppose, thought that I might be a, quote, militant. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, um, uh, and, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, I remember, from the time I was very small, I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone, we, we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organize themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I, just, uh, I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Welcome to volume two of No Justice, No Peace. My name is Dan Cable. We are here this week again to amplify the voices of people of color and their experiences both present 
and past of being a person of color in America. And you just heard an excerpt from the Black Power mixtape, 1961 to 1975 with Angela Davis, who is an incredible activist and educator. And it is wild how relevant her words are in, uh, in the current state of things. Things feel overwhelming, but it is exciting to see how strong this movement is right now and the change that has already been made because of its strength. But there's obviously still a lot of work to do and a lot to sort out as far as future goals of equality and decreasing the amount of police violence and brutality in this country. And I think there definitely has to be some thought put into place of, of how to sustain all this energy and, and not let it just burn out. I think even from a, a personal standpoint, I've had to uh, figure out how to take a breath every once in a while and, and uh, figure out how to step back from the situation, which is hard to do when it seems to be the thing that is most on my mind but figuring it out i am figuring it out and thank you to everyone that tuned in to volume one of no justice no peace thank you for the feedback it has been very positive and i'm eager to keep working on projects like this so if you have an experience to share please get at me the links will be in the episode notes as well as uh a link to a Google Doc that has a list of organizations and causes that are helpful to the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as others who align with them. So check that out for more information. Before we get into the messages from the folks that have been kind enough to share their experiences and points of view, I want to touch on a couple things, one being the surprise Dave Chappelle special that dropped last week titled 846. Spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen it. It's not Dave's funniest work. And that was by his own design. There's some laughs throughout the the 27 minute special. But for the most part, it's just Dave speaking about his thoughts on current times and the murder of George Floyd. And... I found it pretty unreal how quickly he was able to gather his thoughts on all of it and put together this filming in such a short amount of time is is so impressive. And I think that's why Dave is one of the greatest, if not the greatest. And I was eager to hear Chappelle's thoughts on everything going on right now. I just think he's always had such a great way with words and magnifying and examining things, especially in regards to social issues and the experiences of black people throughout his career. So big thanks to the GOAT of Stand Up for sharing his thoughts and documenting it in that way. I saw Dave Chappelle's first HBO special when I was 14 or 15, and he immediately became my my favorite stand-up comedian and all of his 
work over time seems to to hold up really well. So I encourage you to not only check out what he has to say in full on this this new special, but go back and check out those first two HBO specials. This is a clip from 846. This is a, this is a fucking weird time. Mm. In like 1993, I'm, I, I'm not sure what year it was, but I was in LA, I had smoked a joint, and I was watching the movie Apocalypse Now. It was like just after four o'clock in the morning. And what, what, what later would become to known the Northridge earthquake happened. It felt like it started in my apartment. You know, I'm from east of the Mississippi. On this side, we don't know what earthquakes are about. I gotta tell you something, man. Excuse me for burping. This shit was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Uh, a lot of things went through my mind. I was, I was like, not naked, but you know what I mean? Just, walk, just chilling in my boxes. Uh, I put my clothes on. I found a, my weed and some uh, a pipe and some and a lighter and and some money and my keys. All these things and while the earthquake is happening. While I'm experiencing what earthquake is the first time, and I was certain that I would, might very possibly die. As a matter of fact, I remember I made a point not to scream, just in case I lived, I wouldn't have to remember myself being vocally terrified, but I forgave myself for being terrified. That earthquake couldn't have been more than 35 seconds. This man kneeled on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Can you imagine that? This kid thought he was gonna die. He knew he was gonna die. He called for his mother. He called for his dead mother. I've only seen that once before in my life. My father, on his deathbed, called for his grandmother. When I watched that tape, I understood this man knew he was gonna die. People watched it, people filmed it. And for some reason that I still don't understand, all these fucking police had their hands in their pockets. Who are you talking to? What are you signifying that you can kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and feel like you wouldn't get the wrath of God. That's what is happening right now. The incredible Dave Chappelle. I will put the link to the full special in the episode notes if you want to see that in full. I would definitely encourage you to do so. So one of the things that got brought up by one of the contributors, Rufus Small Towns from Volume 1, of this project was that there seems to be a large gap in the mainstream education of black history and what happens in between the big gaps of Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and, and present day. I think the mainstream history 
kind of tries to sell everyone that after Martin Luther King gave his I have a dream speech that everyone was equal and everything was fresh after that. But uh, yeah, not the case. And it seems like a lot of history has been swept under the mainstream rug unless you are super interested in digging for it and and actually trying to figure out how things unfolded. And once you start digging, it seems like everything is kind of right in front of your face, especially in the digital age with the Internet. There's so much material and content to kind of educate yourself on these things. And I've just been kind of diving into things like Black Wall Street, which I had never really known about. There's a great podcast called Black Wall Street 1921, which leads up to the Tulsa Massacre. And just a short synopsis would be black people are given land as a part of the Emancipation Proclamation. And in a part of Oklahoma where they actually abided by this, they started to build their own sustainable economy because white people wouldn't let them shop in their stores anyhow. So the result of this was that a class system started to develop in the black community and some black people became well off and some pretty wealthy and started doing better than white people. And white people got jealous and angry about their success and equality and, and torched all their shit and killed a bunch of people. It was a bloodbath, and it's certainly worth looking into and just another part of the history where people of color are fucked over by greedy, racist white people who are fearful of sharing land that they stole. And it's just mind-boggling. So check out that podcast if you're interested in finding out how that kind of all unfolds in detail. It is pretty wild that it's not a more mainstream thing. And the other thing that I want to highlight on this episode is Juneteenth. And if you're listening to this on its projected release date, today, June 19th, is Juneteenth. This is the Black Independence Day, another thing that does not get much or any mention in in mainstream history classes. And it's this significant day in which many slaves found out that they were actually free, which didn't happen until 1865. You're talking about two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation is signed. And I don't know. I think it's a big misstep that this isn't some sort of national holiday, as it seems just as important as the 4th of July. But I don't want to be the white dude dropping a bunch of black history. But I've been watching a bunch of videos, trying to further my own education on Juneteenth and its meaning. So I put together some clips with some people of color providing a larger explanation of what Juneteenth is. So I will put links in the episode notes if you would like to see these videos in full. So here's a short rundown on Juneteenth. Some of you may not be aware of this, but America actually has two Independence Days. One celebrates America's freedoms from Britain's rule. Another holiday, Juneteenth, commemorates the day when a Union general came into Texas and gave an order that actually ended slavery. Now, you may be going to yourself like, wait, didn't Emancipation Proclamation take care of that? And my answer to you is this. You actually thought the Confederate States obeyed the law. Okay, sure. 
On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln declared all slaves held in Confederate states to be freed. But that news never reached the Texas slaves, and there's many theories as to why. Maybe someone literally murdered the messenger that was sent to Texas to inform them. Maybe, in typical Confederate fashion, they withheld some information from the slaves. Some historians believe that since the Civil War wasn't over yet, that the lack of Union Army presence in Texas made it hard for Lincoln's proclamation to be enforced. Nonetheless, it was cotton-picking business as usual in Texas despite the proclamation. Some slave owners in neighboring states moved their slaves to Texas because they thought that the Confederate Army would eventually win the war, and when it was over, they could get their property back. So when Union General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas with Union soldiers behind him, and he saw all of these slaves, he decided to make an announcement on June 19, 1865. First off, a proclamation was made from the president to free all these slaves two and a half years ago. Second off, you are no longer slave owners and slaves, you are employers, and those are your hired workers. Some slaves dipped out of there before Granger could even finish his announcement. Other slaves decided to go and leave the state so that they could repair their families that were torn apart from the slave trade. Others decided to flee up north, and they lived happily ever after, right? No, of course not. By law, they were free men and women, but in reality, they were enslaved by oppression and violence. Black bodies still hung from the branches. Some were even shot for their freedom. But freed men and women wanted to celebrate that they were just that, freed. They created a holiday that was originally called June the 19th. But then it was kind of squeezed together and now it's Juneteenth. When they wanted to celebrate the first annual Juneteenth, segregation laws forbade them from using public spaces. Okay, that's fine. We'll celebrate near rivers and lakes. They dressed in the fanciest clothes so they can combat laws that required them to wear raggedy clothing. They ate barbecues, sung spirituals, preached religious sermons. Strawberry soda was the drink of choice, and they also ate a lot of red fruits and desserts like strawberry pie and red velvet cake to commemorate the blood that was spilt during slavery. These rituals still occur in today's Juneteenth celebrations, whether it be parades, cookouts, or five-day festivals. And since whites didn't want to share their own spaces with blacks, the blacks decided that they would raise their own funds for their own celebration sites, such as Emancipation Park in Houston, Texas. So as the former Texas slaves decided to migrate across the country, so did the importance of Juneteenth, which is also known as Emancipation Day or Freedom Day. In 1980, Texas was the first state to declare Juneteenth a state holiday when state offices are not closed, but partially staffed. So far, 45 states have recognized the historical significance of Juneteenth. Guess what? Alabama wasn't last this time. Alabama was the 40th state to do so, but it didn't get the same paid state holiday status as Confederate Memorial Day or Robert E. Lee Day. There's also a national campaign to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Whitewashed textbooks didn't, and still don't, mention Juneteenth. Because of that, a lot of people are still finding out about Juneteenth. So whether you found out about Juneteenth decades ago, a few weeks ago, or even just now, don't worry. There'll be plenty of cookouts, parades, and festivals to celebrate the resiliency of the black community. I'm Star Dunnigan with Reckon. If you like what we're doing, please follow Reckon by AL.com on Facebook or Twitter. You can also subscribe to our newsletter by going to AL.com slash Reckon. 
It's amazing to me that, especially among uh, the African-American culture, we have a little bit of a fear of, of embracing that history, you know, because there's some shame connected to slavery. I don't feel that way. I feel that that is such an important part of who I am as a person. The strength that I have within me comes from that struggle. African-American Independence Day. Absolutely. We're celebrating yep. our day of liberation, our day of liberation. It's important to have opportunities for us to celebrate our oneness, our wholeness, our completeness, our dynamic selves. It's vital to African-American people to have a, an opportunity, a date, that heralds the importance of who we are as a people and what we've been through as a people. There is a lot going on in this world. There's a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, and a lot of uneasiness. The foundation you have can kind of give you a little bit more of a sure footing because you can look and say, well, wait, my family made it through this hatred. Somehow they made it through. Yeah, so take that strength and go up to the next level. I love seeing the support that I get every year. It's always new people I'm meeting and hopefully collaborating with them so we can have Juneteenth and not let it die. It's so important. So there is some knowledge and history on Juneteenth. I hope that you all are staying safe out there. It is crazy that there is still a pandemic going on amidst all of this activism and just try to remember to take a breath every once in a while as things can become overwhelming quickly. And now we're gonna get into some messages that were contributed this week. Big thank you to the folks that you're going to hear from. This is uh, a vulnerable thing that I've asked of these people. I really appreciate them stepping forward in this way. And I appreciate last week's guest contributors as well. I encourage you to check out volume one if you enjoy this and want some more context for this project. From here on out, you will be hearing the sounds of Portland-based beatmaker and producer Omari Jazz. Omari just put out this really killer record a couple weeks back called Dream Child, and you will be hearing tracks from that underneath the contributors' messages this week. The link for Omari and the other contributors will be in the episode notes as well. And before we slide into the messages, I'm going to kick the episode off with the first track off of the Dream Child album from Omari Jazz. This is Cadence. Let's do the damn thing.
My name is Renee Stewart. I'm 40 years old. Uh, I was born in upstate New York, but I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, currently, I live in Southern California. Um, I am a bartender. My dad is black and my mom is Korean. Growing up, I struggled a lot with self-identity because no one looked like me. I had tan skin, I had hazel eyes, my hair was straight. Um, even my sister, like she was darker skinned. Her hair was this thick, beautiful, curly hair like Mariah Carey. Not current day Mariah Carey, more like the 90s Mariah Carey. I wanted curly hair so bad that my dad let me get a perm, which was a big mistake. Um, you can just imagine, I don't even need to go into it. But growing up in Las Vegas, in predominantly white neighborhoods, all my friends were white. I dated white guys, um, but I never felt like I belonged. I never fit in anywhere. Um, from elementary school and through high school, um, people always asked me, what are you? Like every day I got asked, what are you, multiple times. Uh, I just remember I would get so anxious because I was worried how people saw me. I was worried what they were going to say and the reaction when I said I'm black or I'm black and Korean. Sometimes they would say, oh, but you don't look black or, oh, I can tell you're part black. It just was confusing to me because I never felt like I was black enough. The other day I was texting one of my best friends and she said to me, can you imagine being a black woman in America today? And I was like, I am a black woman in America today. And she's like, no, no, I don't, you know, that's not what I mean. You know what I mean, right? And I just, it wasn't so much that I took offense because she's one of my best friends and I can do the whole thing where I defend her and say she's not racist because she isn't. But just the fact that she sees me as a non-color, she just sees me as a person, is huge. But I also need to take a step back and recognize my own privilege because I do pass for Filipino or Hawaiian or whatever people think I pass as something other than being black. And I thought about all the times that I've been pulled over um, for like speeding or falling too closely. Like I went back and looked at these tickets and in the box where it says race, I, I see an A, I see an O, A for Asian, O for other. There's only one B for black and that was, it doesn't matter what the ticket was for. It's just, I still don't have that black fear that people get where when they're pulled over, they don't know if they're going to live. They don't know if they make any kind of movement. If, this per if, they're, if the police officer is going to shoot them. I've never felt that before. So I just have been taking this time and really looking at who I am as a person and how the color of my skin is a privilege as well. My husband is white and he's Mormon. He was raised in the church. His whole family, everybody's Mormon. I was the first person of color to marry into this family. Um, it was last week when people were posting the black box and saying Blackout Tuesday. And I asked him, would you say Black Lives Matter? And he said, well, all lives matter, but yes, Black Lives Matter too. And I just started crying. I just felt like I had done a disservice. I never really, like he and I never, talked about race really. I knew that he wasn't racist per se because he doesn't say racist things, but it's like what people are saying now. It's not enough just to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. You have to be able to speak up when people are saying things around you that you know is wrong. 
we'd never had that discussion before. So after I composed myself, I just told him how I felt about the movement. I explained what Black Lives Matter really means to me, or what people are talking about when they say that. And just a few days later, his he was over at his parents' house helping. And so his sister is in the salon room and she's doing someone's hair. And his mom and his sister and this client, they're all talking about the protests. They're talking about just everything that they're seeing on social media, everything they're seeing on, on television. And so Mike is hearing this and he goes in there and he says, um, that's not what they mean. All lives, like all lives matter, of course, but it's not just about that. Like, look what's happening to black people right now. I get emotional thinking about it because I, when he and I were having that conversation, it didn't feel like a teaching moment. It didn't feel like what we were talking about was going to change his mind frame or change how he saw things or even make it to where he felt comfortable enough to say those things to his family. So he says to his mom, um, what if one of those men were me? And I don't think she ever thought of it like that. How do you really put yourself in someone else's shoes? I just thought it was so bold of him to take it to a point where she would have to stop and think. And she, you can't, you can't imagine this scenario. And that is how he explained privilege to her. That's how he explained white privilege. That she can't imagine him going out for a jog and getting shot dead in the middle of the road or getting pulled over and having someone press their knee into your neck until you stop breathing because that that wouldn't happen to him. He's white. You know what I mean? It's just, it's been, this has been a heavy, heavy time, but I've just learned so much about everyone. You're just, it's opening, opening your eyes to who people really are, but it's not hopeless. I feel like it's easy to just write people off and say you're ignorant, you're racist, you're this, you're that, but you have to give people the opportunity to learn so they can be better. I think just taking the time to do research, taking the time to listen and to think beyond yourself is what needs to happen. There's too much social media spinning things out of control, like changing the dialogue in such a negative way. Too many people don't see things for what they really are. They're told one thing and they stick with that. They don't want to, they don't want to understand. I just, I voted for Trump. I'm sorry. I did. I didn't know. I did not know who he was going to turn into. I feel like I was misled. It doesn't make any sense, the things that he says. How are people still supporting him? How are people still following along? I have a difficult time articulating my disdain for that man based on all the asinine things that come out of his mouth. I know the U.S. will not survive another four years with him in office. We need to vote him out. Everybody needs to vote him out. It just has to, it has to happen. We, we can't continue on this way. I can't even, I don't want to think about it. I think for me, no justice, no peace. It just makes, I don't know, it just seems like common sense 
some people take it as a, it's a threat. And in some cases, maybe it is. But for me, I just think as long as this injustice, these injustices keep prevailing, acting peacefully is just morally irresponsible. If you can allow someone to get murdered and nobody is held accountable, and you're just going to go to bed at night thinking that the world is a perfect place, that's the, you're part of the problem. These things keep happening. It's not new. It's been happening for years. And this movement needs to keep gaining momentum. That's the only way that anything is going to change. I feel like too often it's been, no justice, no peace isn't, this isn't the first time it's been used. It's been used for years. And things continue to stay the same. So I'm just, I really am hoping and doing everything that I can in my own power to get out there and keep this thing going. I'm a Jai Marshall. I'm 29. I was born in Bethesda, Maryland. I currently live in Portland, Oregon. And I am a lot of things, but we'll just suffice to say that I'm a musician. I would definitely say that my experience growing up perceived as black in America is definitely different than most people's experience. My family comes from a lot of places around the world, from Central and South America to Hawaii. We got some family in Germany, a Native American family. Like My family comes from a lot of places. And the genes that definitely stand out the most are the ones that are African American. My mom's side is very, very diverse. My dad's side is fairly diverse, but not nearly as diverse as my mom's side. And I'd say to start off, my experience it's weird that i can trace i guess it feels weird that i can trace my mom's side of the family generations way back but i can't do the same thing on my dad's side i would be considered a third generation freed african-american meaning my dad's grandparents were born into slavery his parents had him when they were fairly young i think they weren't even out of their teens yet and then he had me, the youngest of three siblings, when he was in his mid to late 30s, I believe. A lot of the things that we see happening as far as the civil rights movement are fairly recent. And we're always given the idea that it took place a long, long time ago. But no, it really hasn't. And I say all that just because I grew up in the suburbs and I've always had a weird time feeling like I belong places. My parents raised me and my elder sister, the middle sibling, away from predominantly black neighborhoods because during the 90s, that would have been like Baltimore, Maryland or Baltimore County. And those were very dangerous places to be in Maryland. Baltimore still kind of is a dangerous place to be, but not to the point where uh, there were two shows that were very prominent that were based off of how dangerous it was in Baltimore. Homicide, and everybody's favorite, The Wire. So they raised me in predominantly white neighborhoods where I was maybe one of five black kids. My parents didn't really raise me or my sister to think that we were different than our neighbors. That's not to say that we ignored our culture or that we forgot who our ancestors were. We celebrated 
Kwanzaa all throughout my childhood. We learned about black leaders, black inventors, black scientists. It's not like we ever forgot who we are or where we came from. We just weren't taught to look at our skin as any different than the people that were around us or that we were going to school with. I think that my parents really did that to make sure that I never truly felt like an outcast. I do believe that as I became more aware of society in general, that I started to feel stranger, like a stranger in my own skin or in my neighborhoods, because I couldn't truly connect with the people that were around me because I wasn't like the people that were around me. I listened to metal. One of my favorite groups is Dream Theater. I love progressive music. I remember this one time I was in a science class. I had to be in like in sixth or seventh grade. And this girl that was sitting next to me said, shouldn't you be listening to rap? And I <laughs> responded with, shouldn't you be wearing a hood? She didn't get it. I thought it was hilarious. I don't know what to say to her. But all in all, I honestly don't really think about my skin that much until I have to go somewhere or do something. So it's, it's very weird in that when I'm by myself or if I'm with friends, the people that I truly trust, um, with family, not even an issue. Doesn't uh, come across my mind until someone says something. I feel at home, but at the same time, I don't feel at home because the second that I have to go out to walk my dog, I become acutely aware that I need to dress in a way that's kind of non-threatening, but also makes me blend into what's going on around me. I drive a Toyota Yaris because it's not flashy. I fly under the radar on the road. I do a lot of things just kind of subconsciously to avoid detection of the people that are around me or police. But at the same time, I don't really think about the fact that I'm black. It's a very strange and kind of tiring dichotomy to have to live with. Luckily, all of my experiences with the police have been very good, I would say, or at least have had good outcomes. I have never had a weapon drawn on me. I am very lucky in that manner, I would say, and knock on wood. But that's not to say that it couldn't go wrong today, tomorrow, next week, whenever. I've definitely had teachers single me out and it's frustrating because I was a problem child to some teachers, but I wasn't any different in my actions and the kids that were around me. But there were some teachers that would literally just single me out. And I never really thought about it until I was out of school as to why they were singling me out or what they were singling me out for. My parents can't really think if they ever gave me the talk of how to speak to police. I grew up in a house that definitely promotes self-defense over anything else in any sort of situation where your life may be in danger. For about two to three years, uh, my family ran martial arts schools and uh, part of our self-defense trainings that we would go through or they would teach people would be how to, one, deal with a situation when a firearm has been pulled on you, negotiating your way through that situation, and then also how do you deal with the authorities afterwards? Because just because you survived the interaction with the person who drew a weapon on you or has threatened your life doesn't necessarily mean that you're about to survive the second encounter, where we see this like almost every day at this point where 
a black person is perceived to have a weapon in their hand. There is this school of thought in martial arts and self-defense of I would rather go to a court date than a funeral. And that was pretty much the ethos of how we were taught. How do you survive? As far as what do I see allies doing that are uh, that is helpful versus dangerous, I see a lot of things that I don't necessarily think are dangerous. There are definitely things that are happening that are dangerous. I would say more things that I am a, not necessarily afraid of, but I know are going to happen going forward. So currently everybody seems to be pretty much on the same page as to we have to tackle this. And luckily we're at this weird point in time when everybody has the ability to say something, whether it be on social media, um, going out in the streets and protesting, uh, and learning all that they possibly can learn from books or Googling, whatever. That's cool. What I am hesitant about is going forward. I am afraid that the momentum will be lost. And once the election rolls around, we're going to end up with Donald Trump as the president again, which I don't want to say I'm okay with, but it's definitely, I feel like I know what I'm getting. I know how to deal with that. I have lived that my entire life. It is not safe for everyone. It's not safe for anyone really, but we can continue to keep up the pressure and keep people involved. What I am afraid of is if we go to having Joe Biden as a president, people who are liberal-minded as opposed to progressive-minded will be like, we did it, we have overcome, we got rid of the orange menace, but we'll not see that Joe Biden's actions back in the 90s helped to like catapult us to where we are right now. If he does decide to run with Amy Klobuchar as his running mate, Derek Chauvin, she let him basically off the hook. It wasn't even a slap on the wrist. She let him off the hook when she was the DA in Minneapolis. How am I, as a black person, supposed to feel like we're going to have any sort of real progress, any sort of real benefit to everyone if we are putting people in power or keeping them in power that got us to the place that we are currently that doesn't seem like a smart thing it doesn't seem like the safe thing to do it doesn't seem like it's a good idea at all neither option that we have is good i don't know what to tell middle class people other than if you let Joe Biden become the president and you let him return you to quote unquote normal, then you are just going to sweep under the rug everything that is happening in neighborhoods you do not exist in. I am lucky that I have grown up in suburban neighborhoods. I am lucky that I can afford to live in nice places but I know that the second I walk out my door, I am no different than a person who did not have the same privileges as I did. And it's solely because of how I look. And if we let Joe Biden become president and he does do what he says he's gonna do, where he's going to expand the police forces, he's gonna give them more resources, he's going to not expand 
mental health services or care workers or housing the homeless, the things that we want, the things that we need, then what are we doing? Why are you in the streets with us if you know that that's what you're going to do? And maybe you don't know that's what you're going to do. I think that people really need to be conscious of what politicians like Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, career politicians Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer are willing to let slide because it's normal, because it's safe for corporate white America. We can perpetuate systemic change if we don't give up. The voices that need to be the loudest are the ones that are speaking right now. Uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Campaign Zero, uh, any calls to defund the police, disband the police. The police are a broken system. I don't care how people say, well, what are you going to do in this situation? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to handle the situation with my neighbor by myself. Or I'm going to call somebody who is better, has better resources to come and deal with that situation. The police are not better resources for situations where somebody is going through a mental health crisis. The police are not equipped to deal with that. I shouldn't have to call 911 for a welfare check on someone and the police show up. And this is definitely something that has happened. I was driving down NATO. I saw someone that was slumped over on a bench and I called 911. I said, hey, I would like someone to do a welfare check. It looks like this person may be in distress or whatever. The 911 operator said to me, sure, we'll send the police. I don't want the police sent. I want EMS sent. They are better equipped to deal with someone who is going through a health crisis than the police. We need to keep up the pace. Just because we get little bits here and there, bringing down monuments, Ted Wheeler defunding the police department by $15 million in Portland, we need to keep up the pace. We have gotten where we are with the successes in the last couple weeks because we have been relentless. Politicians are afraid that they will lose their seats of power. Keep up the pace, call senators, write letters. And when you do write letters, don't just sign a petition that auto-generates a letter because I've talked to staffers and they know that if they start getting 10, 15, 20 messages all with the same header, just a name change, they can set up a filter for keywords in the letter and toss it or key sentences and toss it and have it sent to an automatic bin that deletes it. Write your own letter. Let your voice be heard. You may get lost. You can use the other one as a template, but use your own words. Annoy the shit out of everyone you possibly can to get done what you want. Public servants are exactly that. They are public servants. They work for us. We pay their bills, which means that they need to listen and actually act on what we want. It's funny that we had the, a Zoom council meeting for the city of Portland. They were t discussing the, the proposed budget for 2021 and forward, I guess. 
uh, for the police budget. And the whole time I watched it, I just wanted to reach through the camera and slap the shit out of Ted Wheeler because I could see how smug he was being when people were righteously frustrated with the fact that protesters were getting tear gassed in the streets and some people were using colorful language and he would scoff at it or he would laugh if somebody got cut off. That's not a public servant. That is a person who has power and is happy with the power they have. I'll say it here, when it comes around for Ted Wheeler's re-election, vote his ass out. As far as the president goes, I don't expect anything from him. Any person that holds that office is not just a figurehead. But if we are to democratically elect someone to be the head of this country, then they need to actually lead this country and listen to the people that are in it. No justice, no peace is only half of the saying. The full thing is, if we know justice, you will know peace. If we have no justice, there will be no peace. It just kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier of don't give up. I mean, how are they going to pass a law in the name of Breonna Taylor and not arrest the people who murdered her? How are we supposed to trust a justice, quote unquote, system when we are perceived as guilty when the police show up? Rashad Brooks was murdered for being drunk in a parking lot. He wasn't being disorderly. He was just sleeping off in his car. And it's not like he's the first person to have ever been drunk and try to sleep it off in the car. Which I guess leads me back to another thing that I was saying, that there are better people to deal with these situations. Crisis counselors should be there. Hey, this person is drunk. Uh, I've dealt with drunk people before. Maybe I should go help this guy out. Maybe he just needs a ride home. We can figure out how to get his car home. Basic solutions. These cops had gone through de-escalation training a couple months ago, and they still shot him. That doesn't make any sense. You cannot reform an inherently broken system. And if these officers are not, they are not only charged, but arrested, tried, and convicted with the same level of severity as a civilian, as a normal person that is walking the streets the person that they have sworn to protect and serve, then there will be no, no justice given to the community. And the state of Georgia will know no peace. If the officers who broke into Breonna Taylor's home and shot her eight times in the back are not arrested, charged, convicted, sent to jail with the same amount of time as a normal civilian walking the streets, then her community will know no justice. And her community, her mayor, her governor, her local aldermen, local councilmen, will know no peace. If the people who choked out George Floyd are not tried and convicted the same level of severity as a civilian, then I hope nobody gets out of these streets. 400 years of the same bullshit. It's tiring. 
it is very tiring. And for the people that are just now joining the conversation or just now joining the movement overall, I will warn you, it is not easy. It is stressful. You will have nights where you cannot sleep. You will have days where you probably can't eat. Don't give up though, because the second that you give up, and that crack starts to form in the armor that we have all built, that's when we start to lose. And right now we are so powerful. The entire world is with us on this. America needs to pay for its original sin, not just to black Americans who are the descendants of traded slaves, but Native Americans who have had their lands taken from them and their population decimated by generation after generation of biological and psychological warfare to Asian Americans who were promised a better future and ended up at the shit end of the stick. We cannot give up at all. No justice, there can be no peace. I don't care if we burn this entire country to the ground, if it means that we can rebuild it with a better future, with not just equity for everyone, but social justice for everyone, then so be it. Uh.